0: In 2018, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office released a 1,000-page report detailing decades of sexual assaults and cover-ups committed by Roman Catholic clergy. Like the reports and investigations that preceded it, it's fading from memory. Swears and Prayers is a conversation with Catholics about their relationship with the Church and their struggles with faith in the face of this ongoing and unresolved crisis. These are everyday people, and they're real stories. Eric is in his 30s. When we talked, he was a doctoral candidate in theology at Fordham. He was living in Charlottesville for the Unite the Right rally. He now is in California.
1: I grew up in San Jose. Very different culture from out here, and uh, my mom was Catholic, so me and my brothers and my little sister grew up Catholic. My dad was not, but I didn't really know this until maybe 11 or 12, because he always came with us, because uh, he's nice, and that must take a lot of patience to go to Mass every week if you're not Catholic. Um, I learned, I don't, I don't know if agnostic or atheist is the right word for him. He never really talked about it and really cared to. He, I think he just wanted to support my mom raising us Catholic, so... Kept it quiet, but I remember learning that and that that raised questions for me. Oh, there's another option, you know. Right. Uh, and my mom let me choose whether or not I wanted to be confirmed in the church, and I didn't know what to do. I was in middle school. Right. I had I had never really thought about my faith and whatever. It was a given. It was something I thought about. And did As you go of, to
0: Catholic school, or was it like you're doing like the religious, like the classes on the Sunday, like for the?
1: Well, I never actually did the classes, okay. so this was at the outset. Do you want to engage in this process? I oh, got um, it. So I had done okay. first communion. Right. Um, no, I did not grow up uh, going to Catholic school. That was not till grad school that I was ever exposed to that. Okay. In fact, I was supposed to go to a Catholic high school. My mom dropped me off to take the test to get in in eighth grade, and I ran away. Once uh-huh. <laughs> I really didn't want to go there, so I went to the public school. <laughs> uh, it was a good school, and so it was always a like a live question for me: Would I want to? what do I want to do about my faith? I mean, that, it's just, the question never even occurred to me. Like, what? <laughs> right. what is faith? That, what's the other option, really? I knew my dad had this other thing going. And so I just never thought about it until I got to college and started studying philosophy and atheists. I majored in philosophy and was reading Nietzsche. And there was a particular professor who I later learned was a Baptist but I thought was a raging atheist who had all these answers. And just reading these texts raised a lot of questions for me. And I realized... I had never given any thought I had no defense for any of this and it was making sense to me at the same time I was being exposed to other Christians mm-hmm. <laughs> who I didn't um, wait so were you confirmed like did you no I was oh, never confirmed, confirmed. Okay. my older brothers were not confirmed and so I didn't right, so it's, right.
0: it's like so you choose this path you're like yeah, yeah. I'm good Brian Scott didn't do it so I'm not doing <laughs> okay. it yeah
1: and uh, other Christians really disturbed me they, yeah. they were telling me Gandhi's in hell gay people are in hell that was the big thing for me um I still remember having a burrito with this guy, Michael, who was a friend of mine. I had a vague awareness of a creeping atheism coming on, and he knew it, and I couldn't even name it, but he just asked what's going on, and I said, well, I'm disturbed by the idea that all the Christians I know think gay people go to hell. I think right. that's really hateful and terrible of you all. <laughs> and he, I remember, I'll never forget it, he, we were eating burritos, and he just stopped for maybe three seconds and stared off into the distance thinking, and he says... You know, it breaks God's heart to send gay people to hell. But he's just got to do it. And he took a big bite of his burrito. <laughs> oh, I wow. This, I, I'm out. That was the, a real breaking point for me. I said, I'm out. I'm, I'm, not, I'm like, not a Christian. If this is what Christianity is, I can't be it. This and, is when you're in,
0: in college? Yeah, I think I was a sophomore at yeah. this
1: point. Early sophomore year. So I was just out. Yeah. And I just decided I'm going to pursue whatever it is I think is real in life. And, you know, studying philosophy. So Mm -hmm. beauty and truth and love and peace and all these concepts. And it's it's been a very slow process. It really wasn't until just when I graduated that I started praying again. And I didn't know what I was praying to. But I feel that that process from sophomore year to the end of senior year, I guess that three-year period was really foundational for me. Yeah. Um, I had to reject everything (laughs) well I didn't reject everything I had to think I rejected everything to become my own person Mm -hmm. in the church I think
0: so reject like what when you say everything like what are some examples besides the gay stuff
1: sure so it was the first time I turned an attentive eye to what my church is and what it believes Mm -hmm. and what do do we mean when we say it (laughs) what is the church um and so it was not a discipline study at the time, but, you know, I learned that the rationale for why women can't be priests, and then I realized, I've never thought about this before, that women can't be priests. I just accepted the patriarchy I grew up in as the air I breathed. And the argument was so ridiculously dumb that even... I used to teach first grade. My first graders would be able to poke holes in this argument. And I so I, I rejected that, and once, once you see that it's a patriarchy, I, I guess you can live with the cognitive business have see people ignore it, but I could not ignore it. Right. Um, the defining, you know, defining queerness as objectively disordered, intrinsically disordered. It's terrible. So I rejected that. I rejected, I had to reject all of it. I just said, this is, I have to call everything into question now. Right. What does this mean? If I'm taking Eucharist from the system that dehumanizes so many people right. that I know and love, People that are family to me, friends to me, teachers to me—I um, just couldn't do it. Yeah. So I just walked away from it all, and I—I I, I, I remember thinking, "I'm just never coming back." Screw right. it, I am out. And I've—I've I've come back to the church in a sense, but it's not the same church that I came back to. I had to reconceive what church is, and I had to—I've um, never lost that skepticism. And I've never lost uh, suspicion against all official aspects of the church. The Vatican is not part of my my faith life Uh, everything it says the only reason I care about what it says at all bishops, the Vatican, the Pope is because it does it can do violence and it can help liberate uh, so aside from its political ramifications I don't care about it I don't think what it says is truth or not truth, I just don't care about it I'm just concerned with what damage it can do and what good it can do
0: I consider you to be, like, on that scene of, like, Catholic stuff. Like mm-hmm. No, I love the church. Yeah, like, yeah. I love being Catholic. Yeah. Uh,
1: I would not have been able to say it a decade ago. So maybe I should tell the rest of the story, yeah. I, <laughs> I started teaching first grade, so I graduate... I was very confused. My philosophy professor, who I considered to be truth-embodied for a short while, um, he kind of uh, rope doped me into praying again, and I didn't really know... <laughs> What hit me all of a sudden? I was, I was graduating, I was leaving in our last meeting. I think it was our very last meeting. And I found out he's Christian, and that blew my mind as I was, I was just, just like, You're too smart to be Christian. Uh, the idea of an intelligent faith made no sense to me. Kierkegaard was really the only Christian at the time I could respect, I felt, uh, <laughs> which is just really stupid. Uh, it means I was pretty historically uninformed, but that hit me and all of a sudden now I joined this teaching program and I'm going down to Watts to teach and
0: what was the teaching what was it through? like was it just
1: um, Teach for America oh yeah okay okay heard of it um, so yeah a month later I've, I'm in charge of these six year olds and their education and I'm in a different pace I'm not in San Luis Obispo California anymore I'm in Watts and um, I still I just didn't know what hit me and I met this guy who later became a Jesuit and eventually got kicked out of the Jesuits for being too open about his sexuality and he became my best friend at the time and he uh he took me to church and I really didn't want to go but I also my mind my whole spirit had just been upended learning Mm -hmm. that this guy Dr. Walker was a Christian and so I like what was so like jarring about it for you um I was you know I'm in college I'm immature uh I think I just, I was unmoored and unanchored, I didn't have my faith life anymore, I'd rejected something that I didn't know was foundational in my life, but was, Cause as you know, Catholicism is a whole culture, it's not sure. just, yeah, what you do on Sunday, and so I was floundering around for an identity, and I don't think I even was aware of it, my whole college I was wandering around train tracks, I didn't, I didn't really have friends, I didn't go to parties, <laughs> after high track. school I just kind of wanted to be by myself, I had the social life in high school, and played sports and all that, I, I just spent a lot of time reading by myself at the beach at night or on train tracks. And so this was a very f- important relationship because I didn't have many, but also because he was guiding me towards something. And looking back, it was it was much more like a spiritual director than a teacher. Right. is what he was to me. And so to learn that, I mean, he went about it very intelligently. He knew that if he identified himself as Christian I would have written him off immediately. Um, so I, I'm still sort of navigating trying to name what it is that that uh, so shocked me when that happened. I mean, part of it was just I I wanted a mentor and I didn't even know it at the time. I just wanted a mentor. I wanted someone to learn from and to guide me. And so I found out I was being guided to something different. I felt kind of shocked, not quite betrayed, but also my allegiance to him wasn't going to be... It was stronger than uh, whatever dismay I might have felt at him keeping that secret. I don't know if that's a good question. No. What was that and it, but it, what it did to me was it created this um, chaotic space in which I could have gone in any direction, I think. Um, but it turned towards prayer. So my buddy brought me to church, and they were doing a book sale, and he said, oh, have you read this book Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton? I said, no. Never heard of the guy. He said he's a monk. I said, I don't really know what a monk is. I've All heard of no. him. Uh, plus, I don't have any money. This is like $7. And there's a really nice woman there who was in charge she said just have it <laughs> she kind of overheard she could tell something <laughs> right, was going on right. and uh, I said okay so now I'm teaching uh, I guess at the time second grade and once and I go home and I'm reading Thomas Merton you got this white trapless monk in Kentucky at night and then these black and Latina kids during the day so I'm navigating these two wildly different worlds and life just wasn't making sense and I needed to get away and my buddy Curtis said need to go to a monastery hmm. to clear your head. Because I was dealing with evil as well, just what's, why is the world doing this to these kids? Watts is right. not a great space uh, for children. Um, and I said, what's a monastery? <laughs> I don't even know what you're saying. Right. And he told me all about it. I said, you know, I need to not go away for a weekend, which is what he said. I need a whole lot of time to straighten my head. So I emailed uh, an Irish monastery. I just googled Ireland monastery. I emailed the first place. I said, "Can I come live with you for three months?" Uh, I don't have a lot of money, but I'll work for my pay. They said, "Yeah." They probably thought I was discerning. I was not. But uh, so I went to Ireland, Glenstall Abbey, and it changed my life. It uh, it got me. It gave me permission to get back in touch with my Catholic roots.
0: How long were you there?
1: Uh, I had scheduled it to be for three months. I cut it a little short to go propose to Anna. Hmm. I was weighing or not, whether or not I wanted to become a monk once I arrived. Okay. Which I did not go in with the mindset of, but they invited me to stay.
0: And was it like a Benedictine? Like, was it the, so you, did you pray, like, with them, or, or did, did you kind of do your own thing, or, like, was it, like, you were part of the community, or how did they I was, this? so I
1: lived in the novitiate. There okay. were no novices at the time, so it was just me and the novice master. So this would have been 2008, summer 2008. Okay. I was 23, and, um... I was struck. I yeah, I partook in the the daily life as much as I could. I, I woke up with them and prayed five times a day, doing matins and lauds. And, uh, Compline was always my favorite, and they just had this beautiful space. And they were not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I it was it was the most sane space I'd ever been in. They were um, rooted in a way that I wanted to be. They knew something I wanted to know, and I I sensed that. I could just feel how young and restless I was there. Almost everybody was old. And it was the first time that um, I was not bothered by all the trappings of doctrine and dogma, because they didn't really...
0: It was just the life. It was like the rhythm of the... Yeah. The, the, I presume you're like working, like, mm-hmm. yeah. So labor, praying, day.
1: like... Yeah. Living by the bells. Uh, they will tell you what to do. And you fall into a rhythm of life. The... The seven-day mark is wildly different than the first day, and the second month is wildly different from the seventh day. You fall into a rhythm, and it's beautiful. It cradles you. And I just felt like I was cradled in a faith that I didn't find objective for the first time because they didn't uh, express their religion by excluding others, which was really the only model I'd seen after I started thinking and questioning. But at the same time, I distinctly remember they took me on a road trip to a nearby uh, monastery of women, and halfway there, I said, why are we Why are we going? Like, what's the plan? And they said, oh, we need to say Mass there. Right. I said, oh, how come they can't? Oh, they can't say Mass because they're women. And I remember going there and meeting these wonderful people and just thinking, you cannot have Mass. You're completely dependent on men for Mass. And it really bothered me. We went out to a bar in uh, Galway that night. And I asked them, why can't women be priests? <laughs> and... I learned that they had different opinions on it. Some of them mm. were very staunchly of the opinion, well, you know, this is what Jesus decided, which is a terrible argument. Right. Because then you can't have, you know... It's like, that's it. Jesus didn't <laughs> ordain Americans. He had no, no American <laughs> disciples. So like, you know, He just picked one round thing. Um, but some of them did not. And I found that, oh, there are, they, have, they allow for space um, for disagreement. There's, it's a spacious monastery there and so it was the first time I you know, we, we got in an argument about the Eucharist too a loving argument Yeah, you know? I said what why couldn't mother Teresa bless my burrito and have that be the body <laughs> of God and uh one of them said it was it was brother Coleman said I think that would be Eucharist that is the body of God and some of the others said no eventually you know it was almost sort of like throwing chips at each other kind of argument just joking around but I was fascinated by these new questions and they were open to them that changed my life living in living in the monastery changed my life and I came out with it I wanted to be a monk in the world I couldn't I couldn't leave my students when I thought about staying or not I wanted to become a monk but I the the faces of Tyreek and Radtorian and Marche kept floating through my students and also I was dating Anna right and uh so I said yeah hey, i I'm not going to become a monk. I'm not going to stay here. Do you,
0: you guys both in Teach for America? Or was, yes. Okay. That's, that's, that's you guys met. Okay.
1: I mean, I grew up in a family where we all respected my dad more than my mom. Mm-hmm. And that's changed over time. But as a child, dad was always the one he went to. If you wanted to go to your friend's house, we knew mom would say no. And so he was just more popular. He was more fun. And this is obviously a common thing. It was just... Mom had more responsibilities of taking care of us and so we associated her with more rules. And so it was definitely something I had to work out of. I'm still working out of everyone is. I think there were three things. Uh and I, it really started, I think, for me, with race rather than patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And then, then I made the connection from there. I grew up in a racially diverse place. It right. wasn't like Charlottesville. Um Yeah, I lived down the street from the seven eleven and um I went to school. It was a really racially diverse school. All the schools I went to. So I'm, these are my friends. I'm playing sports. And I remember two people had to drop... My friends, Ulysses and Edgar had to drop out of school to take care of their siblings when their parents were deported. And I just didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that was a reality in my life. Um, but these were people that were... You know, we weren't best friends, but we saw each other every day. We played soccer together. These were my teammates, my friends, classmates. And... um that just shocked me. I, I didn't really realize that was a reality. And so that awoke me to some questions my parents never really placed before me, which was questions of systematic oppression. Right. And I think going from there, and then 9-11 happened in high school, and so you have all this wildly anti-Muslim mm-hmm. sentiment. And I grew up, my best friend's name was Jihad. Right. Uh, <laughs> So I I think the, the the political circumstances sort of awoke me to this just because I was born luckily in a place where I grew close to and loved people who were affected by these these bigotries that otherwise I probably would have embraced very easily. Well it was also just studying theology you can still see the effects today. Women couldn't be theologians yeah. until what the 60s so there are just not as many women on campus. That was very clear especially after the monastic experience when I was. it became so clear to me oh this is a huge. Women can't even say mass for themselves in monasteries. But so to speed back up, uh, I went top first grade again after the master's degree. But then I, I was just drawn to study more theology and deal with questions from the standpoint of my faith. And so I started the PhD at Fordham in theology, and this was really. Uh, it, the result of conversations, well, long prayer and discernment, but once it was clear, I was, my faith life, my prayer life was leading me towards doing a dissertation. I realized this makes no moral sense. The world is consuming itself. Um, you can name 10,000 systemic problems that would be better to address. I'm going to disappear for five years and study? Right. Is that moral? So. And what is your dissertation on?
0: Like, tell me the whole thing.
1: The whole thing, sure. So, a 30 second description mm-hmm. might be. Um, there's this guy, Dan Bergen, who's a Jesuit priest, mm-hmm. poet, peacemaker, probably most famous for a 1968 burning of draft files um, with the Catonsville Mine in Maryland and then running away from the FBI rather than reporting to jail.
0: Which yeah. is an amazing story in itself.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's great. And here's, here's a picture of it. There's his book right here. Nobody yes. thinks it. Disarmed and Disharm dangerous. Disarmed and yeah. uh, He and his brother Phil get all the credit, but really they're stand-ins for a whole movement. And again, you have men overshadowing women. Mary Moylan was a part of this murdery. Melville was a part of this. Um, Liz McAllister, anytime mm-hmm. you're talking about the Bergens, she's you're talking about her as well. But so I decided, look, um, I want to study this straight white man, or maybe straight, who knows, it's this white man who had all these positions of power. How did he wield his, how did he become someone who wanted to creatively use that power to reject it? And so I'm looking at the, his life before 1968. How did he come from this Celebrant of World War II, who really loved Rome, to this guy willing to engage in civil disobedience. Saw him following his life through meeting the worker priests in France, who abandoned their traditional role of ministry, and went to join the Marxists in the factories, and just labor with them. His meeting of Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker in 1954-7 to in New York, then taking um, following him to South Africa, joining the anti-apartheid movement there, to Eastern Europe. Under uh, behind the iron curtain meeting with Marxists there and then finally to uh, oh his engagement with the civil rights movement or lack of engagement because his bishops wouldn't let him join the freedom rides and then finally his exile gets kicked out of the country to Latin America justice liberation right. right when the Vatican II council ends and liberation theology is bubbling up he's there visiting 10 countries so I'm following him around these theological circles asking where his theology came from so that's my dissertation yeah so I emailed, or I, he doesn't have email, I sent him a letter just saying, like, I kind of know who you are, I know the big outlines of your so story. just,
0: the, it's, it's more than that. So <laughs> we've discussed about this before, but it's like you were, you were, had you already started at Fordham, or was this? No. Okay, that's what I'm saying. No. So you were doing your master's?
1: I was what? You are doing your master's when you, so him, when you
0: decided to write to him.
1: Like... I had finished my master's, master's I had taught first grade in D.C. Right. And uh, in Edgewood. And then I started teaching philosophy at a nearby college, mm-hmm. just adjuncting, teaching classes on Dr. King and Malcolm X and ethics. Um, and then I wrote him, because that was when I said, you know. How I, did
0: you I, become familiar with his like, work and
1: his, his persona? Through Boston College. Yeah. Um, I never studied him. I just heard stories about him. I didn't really know what the Catholic worker was. I didn't really know who he was. I just heard stories. And yeah. I had a vague understanding. Here's someone who's been in jail. And really, um, I had been feeling like my life was headed towards jail in some fashion for a long time, since I was maybe 20. When the pictures of Abu Ghraib and mm-hmm. Guantanamo came out, I said I cannot pay taxes anymore. Um, so I always just assumed I was going to do tax resistance. I started planning for it. And there were various ways of going about it, and I was deciding which I thought was best for me. And thinking, seriously, can I spend a long time in jail? How long would you even get? My dad's a cop, and so we were right. o- openly talking about this with each other. So you like, and your dad? Yeah, he wasn't okay. planning with me or anything, but we were talking through possible ramifications sure. and what, what jail is like and stuff. And um, But when I got engaged, that really put all that on hold. You're about going to, go to prison? Yeah, I'll, it's I'll <laughs> sure. It's one thing to decide it for myself, but if, you, if your primary community, um, if that's not consistent with that... So it just got put on hold for a while, and I didn't go to jail, I think, for the first six or seven years of our marriage. Um, so anyway, I sent him a letter, because I, I knew he had worked in the university and definitely out. And yeah. I just said, my prayer life is leading me in, but this makes no sense morally. I think I want to be out. Can you call me on the phone so we can talk about this? And he called me, and he said, hey, it's Dan. And I said, Dan who? He said, Dan Berrigan. I said, oh, hi, Dan Berrigan. He said, uh, why don't you... Oh, no, he just says, I'd love to. I said, he'd love to (laughs) what? He says, why don't you come up to New York and have tea with me? We'll talk. I said, okay, Dan Berrigan, I'll have tea with you. So we talked for maybe three hours and had a wonderful conversation. It was much more pastoral than I thought. I was expecting this angry prophet. Oh. Deeply contemplative presence. Part of that, he was probably 86, 87. And at the end, we talked all this out. He said, I've looked down both of your paths and seeing God smiling back from the end of both. Huh. So, if you're feeling like your prayer life is leading you there, you should apply. And it'll be a blessed path, and God will meet you on it. Whether or not you think it's the most moral decision, if God is there, that's that's where you're to be. And, um... I think, could you just pause for a moment? Sure. Like,
0: I think that that, like, you've... I'm talking from my, my personal, like, lack of, um... <laughs> Direction, but like to have like one of like the like it. 20th century's like biggest like I mean I, don't, I know it doesn't matter he's a man he's a person like whatever but like to have that like I guess is is, is I would consider that to be quite a, quite a gift. Um, you know, I wrote a letter and I got an answer. I mean, it might not be an answer that you that you follow or that you like or that was relevant, but you did get something out of And I just think that's really, really you're like a wrote had a chat. No, I, I kind of had some direction. And you went in a direction, and I don't know if it was because of what he said, but it's it's just um Oh it was. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it might be influenced by him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: sure. I mean you know, it was yeah. a result of a lot of prayer, but sure, I sure. I felt like I needed I was at a crossroads and I needed one last little little nudge to turn this way rather than that.
0: Right.
1: Um, and really it's funny you said I so he also, I told him, I've never found a Catholic community I, re, I respect outside of this monastery, Yeah. but really they're not doing anything for Tyreek and Marche and Rod Torian back in Watts. Like they're not, um, prayer is great and I, I will never criticize what's happened in a Abbey. It was such a beautiful space and I wouldn't be the same without it, but it was not my calling right. in the end. And, um, he just wrote down an address and said, he said, you live in DC? I said, Hey, he wrote down an address. He said, go knock on the door. You'll find your people here. I knocked on the door, it was a Catholic worker, and this guy Art Laffin opens. And uh, my friend Ann Fezco jokes, since you bring up having this great figure, she said, wow, Dan Bergen pointed you to Art Laughing And I said, yeah. She said, that's like uh, Mick Jagger <laughs> sending yeah. you go to hang out with Bruce Springsteen. Because <laughs> <Pretty much. laughs> Art Laffin is this yeah. great presence, too. But this is all, to go back to the maleness aspect, Like mm-hmm. there's this there's this like male rock stardom to the Bergens, right? Yep where it's like, yeah, these bad boys who got put on the cover of Time magazine. But I have found, you know, the same thing everyone found is the Civil Rights Movement went through this so with Dr. King. It's, it's, it's these quiet faces, people like Anne Fesco, my friend, who were, it, it's, it's much more important to remember the vast networks and the movements and the people who are not famous behind them. And, yeah, I get taken in by the celebrity and part of the celebrity sure. of Dan Bergen is the maleness, but that's also why I find it so important to study him or someone like Dorothy Day, who was a woman, but also knew her privilege as a white person very well, her privilege as someone who was not homeless, and decided to use that canonically, this sort of idea of self-emptying, I have this power I should not have. Um, I mean, to me, that's the magic of the Catholic worker, which I got involved in when mm-hmm. I knocked on an art store in D.C. and later in New York. I became very close to the community there, now here in Charlottesville. It's its not, yo, you can live in my house. It is... This is our house now. Right. We, are, we are here together. And this is not me giving you food. This is now our food. And well, I think that's the
0: difference. Between, I was talking to Laura about it. It's like there's charity. And it's like, and then there's that, which I don't know what that is. It's, it's like being human. <laughs> um, it's like it doesn't, you know, charity is kind of like, I give you this thing because I have, I have more, I mean, whatever it is, food, money, time. Um, and then I go back to my thing. And I do my thing over here, away from you. Right. Um, whereas the Catholic Worker is not about that at all. It's no. Like, Come in with we're your bedbugs. humans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your bedbugs are not bedbugs Exactly, bed now. exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. when it gets real yeah. <laughs> all of yeah. a sudden. It's like, and we'll get on each other's nerves, and mm-hmm. it'll be, you know, yeah. it, it's like a human relationship, not a, like, transactional or, like, uh, one based on privilege
1: yeah. Right. And so for the last five years, I've been going through these different models of Catholicism. I would be at Fordham during the day studying, you know, the quote great thinkers, Karl Rahner, Karl Barth, etc., you know, generally white dudes. And then I'll go to the Catholic worker at night. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just so wildly, such a wildly different manifestation of Catholicism in where incarnation is a command, not a, a topic to be studied or a doctrine. And it's beautiful. And I'm very informed by both approaches. And I'm much more deeply drawn to the Catholic worker in theory. But um, I have staked out my life between them, really. Right.
0: Swears and Prayers podcast is brought to you by me, Jen Mediano, and producer Erica Gregory at Scout Creative Agency in Charlottesville.